been a beautiful week, I guess. We're not even winter time yet, though, and it's already feeling cold. <laughs> winter isn't officially here till December 21st, but uh, it's been feeling like it, although it's not been too bad. Well, last week we discussed some more about the leadership of the Philadelphia Church, which is yet to come. And uh, I think it becomes quite clear in Scripture that it will have an open door set before it that can't be shut. Worldwide's door was shut. But uh, the work and the witness that is to come cannot be shut. The whole world will try to shut it, but it can't be shut until the last three and a half days, of course, when it does shut. It says no man can open except God, and no man can shut but God. So when he shuts it, uh, the last two witnesses die, at least the two who are in charge of the end-time work. Uh, Those who are in a place of safety at that point, of course, will not, and they are also God's witnesses, as we shall see today as we go through this uh, next context. But preparatory work always has to be done, and uh, God sent Elijah in the original situation to show that he was God and to do away with the prophets of Baal, ultimately to get rid of Jezebel, who represents false religion, even yet today, as we see in uh, Revelation 2. So God did send that original one who did many miracles, and prepared a way for people to, again, accept the true God. <clears throat> we find that he was counted as a type, uh, or John the Baptist would come later on and be a type of the original John the Baptist. We read some of that scripture, but I want to go back a little bit today as we start into this, because uh, a preparatory work has to be done ahead of time, in order for all the events of these prophecies to come to pass. Now, John the Baptist, just before Christ came the first time, was sent as one to prepare for his first coming. Uh, And Christ makes it clear, as we'll see here again, that another has to come at the end time to prepare for his end time coming, and not just one, but ultimately two, plus uh, a remnant congregation who will be Uh, preparing the way for Christ as well, by building the temple, by building Jerusalem, by being a light to the world. Uh, It's more than a work of two men. It's a work of a remnant of God's people who will be called and stirred to come to work in the temple of God, both spiritual and physical. But uh, Christ refers to uh, Isaiah 40 when he discusses Uh, John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going there quite yet. I want to go back to a couple of these references that Christ made uh, and see how it's laid out here because there's a critical issue. Some have said, well, Christ just said that John the Baptist was the last one and there would not be one at the end. But we have to look at context and understand uh, what part of Isaiah 40 Christ quoted and what he left out because Much of Isaiah, or some in Isaiah 40 at least in the scriptures that follow, include a lot more than what he quoted about John the Baptist. Let's go to Luke 1 to start. And here, uh, Elizabeth had been pregnant, and uh, 
John the Baptist was born, and then when Zacharias had his tongue loosened so he could speak again, he was led to uh, talk about what John the Baptist would do. Uh, verse 69, well, let's see, verse 68, he says, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So uh, he recognized that John the Baptist, his son, would be used to help start the redemption process that, of course, Christ himself is the great Redeemer. But uh, a way had to be prepared. So John came uh, preaching and teaching and telling people to repent, preparing the way for Christ. Uh, and he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Uh, 71, he kind of gives uh, an overview of what John the Baptist would teach. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. So God is going to begin to redeem uh, his people from a world that hates it. And the world, for the most part, does not even yet recognize where God's people are. But when they do know, they will hate us. And we will be redeemed and saved from that. Uh, 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So John the Baptist's job would be to remind people of God's covenant, which they had obviously forgotten. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So he would send them back to their father Abraham, or our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think that is overall the meaning of that scripture in Malachi about turning the hearts of the fathers and the children together, first of all, to our Father in heaven, and secondarily to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those are the fathers that we are to look to, and that's what it says right here. Turn back to Abraham. The, the, the hole from whence you were digged, I think, as Isaiah 51 says. Uh, verse 74, that he would grant to us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So he was preaching way back then that we should be able to serve God without fear. Uh, they should have been able to uh, interact with Christ without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So his message would be about holiness and righteousness as well. Uh, and you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the eternal, or of Christ, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So he preached a baptism of repentance, uh, or a message of repentance and baptism, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring uh, from on high has visited us. Uh, the word day spring there in the Hebrew, or not the Hebrew, the Greek, we're in the New Testament, means branch, uh, according to my marginal reference. We discussed the branch last week. Uh, Zerubbabel is referred to as a human being who is a branch of righteousness who represents Christ as a type of Christ, and here Christ himself is referred to as the branch. 
to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, we're not in peace within the church. We're not within peace in the world. But he does say in Haggai 2.9 that the end-time church, uh, he would bring peace there. So, uh, all of these things that he's saying about John the Baptist here apply to the end-time as well. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. So, he may have been reared with his parents wherever they were, but early in life apparently he went to the desert out into the wilderness and was there until his showing uh, to Israel. So he was kind of out on his own, away from everyone, uh, until that time. Now chapter 3, he is preaching verse 3 of chapter 3. He came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. That's something he preached that was not preached in quite the same way even in the Old Testament because he was looking forward to Christ who would provide a means for the remission of sin. And he was preparing the way ahead of time by preaching that message. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, we're going to go to Isaiah 40 in a little bit, and we're going to see that written there as quoted here. But what you might notice is he only quotes Isaiah 40, verse 2 here. He doesn't quote verse 1, and he doesn't quote anything after verse 2, just that one verse. Because the job of the John the Baptist we're speaking of here before Christ came had a limited job to do. We'll see as we get into Isaiah 40 that the job at the end uh, is different somewhat than what this original was, and that it is in, de- is in definitely an end-time context there in Isaiah 40. This was just speaking of the context of Christ coming and Him preaching in the wilderness ahead of time. Uh, but Christ did not come at that time to save the world. He didn't come to bring on the last plagues or anything else like that at all. It wasn't the end time. It was only his first coming. But we'll see a different context as we get into Isaiah 40 uh, for the end time. And that is part of the proof, by the way, that there is an end time type of John the Baptist and Elijah, not just back then. Because I've heard ministers even in the church say, well, that's all was fulfilled in, in the original John the Baptist. But I beg to differ, and we shall see that. Uh, Now from Luke 3, let's go to Matthew 11. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but see what is said about this John the Baptist. Chapter 11, verse 7 of Matthew. And as they departed, uh, Emmanuel began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? So even while he was still in the desert and in the wilderness, he wasn't at that time involved with Herod unless he came in to visit him, but he was still living out in the wilderness, and people went out to him in the wilderness. Well, what did you expect when you got there? (laughs) A reed shaken with the wind? No. 
But what would you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So John the Baptist was dressed roughly. Another passage says he, was, he wore leather garments, rough garments, and uh, ate locusts and wild honey and so on. Go to Matthew 17. Here's the transfiguration. We'll not go through the whole thing again. Uh, but we know Moses and Elijah appeared there in vision. So the disciples thought that it was speaking of the time of the millennium, and Christ said no. This was to show that they were to look to Christ above Moses and Elijah, and above Abraham and everyone else for that matter. So he said it was a vision in verse 9. And his disciples asked him, verse 10, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elias truly shall first come, and restore all things. So he said, this is a, a futuristic statement. He shall come, but I say to you that he has come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they wanted. Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. So he said, John the Baptist suffered, and they did with him as they pleased. And of course they cut his head off, ultimately. So he was not treated real well. Uh, and he said, just as John the Baptist suffered, so will the Son of Man suffer. And then they understood he was speaking of John the Baptist. Now some have said, well, that doesn't say there's an, an Elijah at the end time, or a John the Baptist at the end time, that it was all fulfilled in that John the Baptist at that time. Let's go on uh, then to... Uh, Malachi 4. Well, no, wait a minute while we're here. Hit Mark 9. Mark 9 and verse 12. Here again is the story of the transfiguration, but it's written a little bit differently here in verse 12. And Christ answered and told them, Elias verily comes first and restores all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many times, things and be set as nothing or held in contempt, as the New King James Version says. But I say to you that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done to him whatsoever they wanted, as it is written of him. Now, I know of no places where it says specifically in the Old Testament of things that they will do to John the Baptist by name. Uh, there are many, many scriptures that show what they would do to Christ. But what he's saying here is he's lumping them together, and many of the things that they did to Christ himself were done ahead of time to John the Baptist. He was misused and abused and eventually killed, even as Christ was. So he's saying the same thing is true of the end time, that they will do as they wish and hell and hold that John or that type of John in contempt as well. Well, these types keep appearing. Now let's go to Malachi 4 and catch one more. Now notice the context here, which is not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John at all, uh, in chapter 4. Behold, the day comes that he shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and the wicked will be burned up, and so on. 
But to you that fear my name shall a son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So here he is showing an end-time context that you don't see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at all. There you see him coming to prepare the way for Christ in his first coming. Here it goes on to say, it talks about Moses in verse 4, and then verse 5, Elijah, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So this is just prior to the day of the Lord, is when he's going to send this particular Elijah. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So, <clears throat> Christ returning and smiting the earth, which he will do, but he won't smite it with the curse if this is done, and things are restored, and, and a message is given to restore us to our father and to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So very much an end-time context here, but you don't see any of that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All you see is a scripture quoted in uh, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 2, about it being a voice in the wilderness. And then this one is implied as well, where he'll restore all things. But it doesn't use the context of the end time in the New Testament, it does it back here. So obviously Christ was speaking of someone to come at the end who they would do with as they wished and treat with contempt ahead of time. So a preparatory work has to be done before uh, Christ returns and as the day of the Lord is approaching. So we can see by putting these scriptures together that indeed there has to be someone at the end. And he mentions both Moses and Elijah here, which are uh, the two witnesses who will uh, come. He used them in the transfiguration rather than someone else. And they're the ones who will, uh, Zerubbabel, restore the law, and we saw last week that he will build a temple, and, uh, and so on. So those jobs have to be done. Now let's go back to Isaiah 40, and let's pick up uh, the story of the end-time type now realize that these types are only types. They're not the exact same individual uh, in any case. If you think back about uh, the first Elijah, uh, he was brave and bold when it came to dealing with the prophets of Baal. Uh, he dwelt in the wilderness and had uh, he was a hairy man with leather clothes and so on too because that's it. that's how the king recognized him. He was not a, a sophisticated type by any means, but he was very strong against the prophets of Baal and against false worship. And yet, on the other hand, when Jezebel stood up and said, "I'm going to come get you," and within 24 hours you're a dead man, he fled for the wilderness. Uh, how did he stand up against 450 prophets of Baal? and then run from one woman, <laughs> but he did. So, uh, and there's nothing particular said about his level of righteousness, let's say, although God did work through him to raise the dead and to perform various miracles, as we saw when we went through that story. Now, John the Baptist, before Christ came, uh, it said he was the most righteous man who had ever lived to that point. 
So he had uh, a very high character, obviously, about him, and did preach the things that his father Zechariah said, which we just read there in Luke 1. Uh, but his level of righteousness was very, very high, as Christ said. Now, when you look at the end time one to come, uh, depicted in Zechariah 3 and 4, as uh, the Joshua there, uh, he had difficulties. It says he was a brand plucked out of the fire. So uh, his, his pants were on fire. Uh, he was uh, a sinner to one degree or another and uh, was in difficulties. And then God rebukes Satan and cleans him up and, and gives him righteous, clean garments. So you see different, you see a type there in general, but different personalities is what I'm pointing out. They weren't exactly the same or the same person or somebody reincarnated or whatever. God uses in the beginning and in first Christ, Christ's first coming uh, and then his second coming, different types of people to fulfill essentially the same job, uh, doing things a little differently and having different personalities. So let's go then to Isaiah 40. Uh, it begins right after uh, the latter chapters of, uh, or the latter 30s, 36, 7, and so on, down to chapter 39 of Isaiah, which to me are clearly speaking of Herbert Armstrong and the former temple. Uh, and then his sons, after he died, his sons in Christ, as he called us, would be taken into Babylon and be eunuchs there. That is, no power to reproduce, no power to grow. Uh, they would just be basically fruitless, and their efforts would mean nothing, which is what we've seen in Worldwide Church of God in its splinter sense. It's, they've not been able to produce anything. So it concludes there with that story. And then the forerunner of what is to come here in this end time begins in Isaiah 40, and carries on through the chapters after that and lay out very beautifully what is to transpire and how it is to start. So uh, this is the way the Philadelphia church begins to, to start uh, because, well, let's, let's start into it and I'll show you that. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Now, we are in a time when the church is not comforted, a time when it is scattered and splintered and confused, frustrated. Uh, people don't know what to do, how to come or go. Or they simply moved over into a splinter group and sat back and relaxed and are doing about the same thing they were doing in Worldwide, which God blew apart. So what they were doing there, what we were all doing there, was not sufficient. Uh, and God blew it apart, and yet they're trying to recreate completely what was then. And what was then uh, did not meet God's approval. So he has to start another work, and he tells us in Haggai that there was the former temple, which clearly, I think, is, was Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, and then a latter temple, which will be built by Zerubbabel and those who are with him, uh, which will have far greater glory than that which came before. In other words, it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same old, same old anymore. It's got to be different. It's got to be upgraded in a much higher spiritual level achieved by the end-time people because they are to be a light for the whole world. 
And that light must be able to be seen by the world, and it must be able to be referred to by the two who are doing the, the primary amount of preaching. So he starts this chapter with uh, a different flavor than what we saw in chapter 39. Chapter 39, the end of it, says uh, that things will not go well. To be, for Hezekiah's sons to be eunuchs in Babylon is not a good thing. <laughs> so worldwide did not end well. Uh, all of Herbert Armstrong's called ones went back into Babylon, or are still ensconced in Babylon, even though they're trying to obey God. But he is going to stir a people to come out of there to build his temple. So this change here represents a different work, a work of comforting as opposed to splintering and scattering in what's going on right now. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God, Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. So, in the midst of the splintering and the scattering that the minor prophets and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel all talk about, uh, there is a message that starts that the scattering, the splintering, the trouble, the iniquity, the warfare uh, that we have been going through, uh, the, the famine and pestilence and sword, spiritually speaking, is going to be behind us, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, let's say. Now, the trouble isn't all over as this starts, just as trouble was not over when Elijah started and the prophets of Baal still had to be dealt with. Uh, the trouble was not over when John the Baptist preached from the wilderness because he would lose his head and Christ would still have to be tortured and killed and anyone who followed him would be tortured and they would try to kill them and ultimately they didn't even kill the apostles with the exception of, of John. So the trouble wasn't over. <laughs> uh, so even as this message of comfort starts, it doesn't mean we're past all the trouble, when you start telling people what is to come and what the answer to the problems is. That has to be presented ahead of time. God does not do anything except he warned or show ahead of time by his prophets. So Isaiah was commissioned here to give a message of comfort after we see worldwide come apart and go back into Babylon in chapter 39 just before this. So he says there, there is an upside. There is there's something coming that is going to be better. <clears throat> so then it says in verse 3, I said verse 2, I was wrong earlier. It's verse 3 that Christ quotes. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Christ quoted this of John the Baptist, who was there just before him, but that's the only verse that he quoted from this context, because John the Baptist indeed was to be a voice in the wilderness preparing for his first coming. But here you see a major prophecy in Isaiah 40 and forward that is clearly going to be shown as an end-time prophecy. 
So Christ indeed was saying, Elijah must first come, but I tell you, he's already come in the form of John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist was fulfilling a type of Elijah, and the end time one to come and preach would also be fulfilling that same prophecy about Elijah and ultimately of John the Baptist, because he will be crying in the wilderness, in the desert, to make a highway for God a way, prepare a way for Christ. Now notice verse 4 starts giving you the context. It's the same kind of context we saw in Malachi 4, where it talks about uh, the wicked becoming ashes under the feet of the righteous and shaking the world and so on. Uh, You find that at the end of the book of Haggai as well, the last verse or two. How Zerubbabel is going to be made a, a signet. Well, that's, I guess, the last three or four verses of Haggai 2 where he shakes the world, and the day of the Lord is coming. So notice verse 4 here in Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the eternal shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. So here you have very much an end-time prophecy uh, the glory of Christ was not revealed in his first coming. He came as a little child, as a babe. He grew. Uh, he was here as a human being who died, whom they killed. His glory was not revealed. His glory will be revealed when he returns in his second coming. That's when it says every eye will see him. It doesn't say it uh, except at his second coming. So, before John the Baptist in the New Testament, were all the valleys exalted and every mountain and hill made low? No. Were the rough places made straight and the rough places plain? No. Uh, Was the glory of the Lord revealed? No. Uh, Immediately after it says here, for a voice to cry in the wilderness and make straight a way for the eternal in the desert, a highway for our God, it immediately begins talking about the end time. So, indeed, there will be a voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord, and it has to be someone who is doing the same job that Elijah was and that John the Baptist was doing, preparing the way for Christ, because that's the context given here. Christ quoted this of John the Baptist, But it also has to be referring to someone at the end time who does the exact same job, because it then immediately goes to an end time context. So we see here that this message in Isaiah 40 is in its ultimate or final fulfillment here at the end time, because that's the entire context. So in speaking of John the Baptist, he only used verse 3. He didn't quote verses 4, 5, and 6, and so on, because it did not apply at that time. It was only a partial fulfillment. Is Christ's second coming going to be more glorious than his first? Yeah, by far. When he first came, it was as a child who grew as a man and set an example of how we should live, and then he died a very ignominious death, and the whole world didn't see him go back to his Father in heaven. So... Uh, That was only a partial fulfillment. 
And that is why Christ did not quote verses 4 and 5. He only quoted verse 3, because that was as far as John the Baptist was going to take it. Now, did he restore some things? Yes, he did. Uh, He began to preach a, a message of repentance and baptism, which had not been preached before. Uh, Christ would preach repentance and baptism. So John came with a little different message than what anyone, the Pharisees or any of those leaders of the Jews had, right? This was something new. So in the end time, we're going to also have something that is new that no one else understands, uh, just as only John the Baptist understood what he was doing. And if you go back to the story of Elijah, he was the only one that knew what he was doing. He says, I'm the only one left who can do this. Uh, The only one that can go against the prophets of Baal. Only one man. Uh, God told him, of course, well, yeah, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed to Baal. You don't know about them. But he was the only prophet there. He was the only one who had the message. And the only one to stand up against Baal. Just as John the Baptist was the only one to stand up and preach Christ, uh, who was to come, and the only one who was killed in preparing the way for Christ. So uh, the parallels are all there, but in Isaiah 40, uh, the context is in time all the way. And we'll see as we go on through this context that that's referred to uh, over and over and over again as an end-time prophecy. So, I guess all I'm trying to explain here is that John the Baptist had a limited job to do with Christ and his limited first coming. His second coming is going to be with great power, with great glory, and the nations are as a drop in the bucket, which we'll see here in just a few verses, and it is totally an end-time thing. So, uh, this prophecy then, in its final fulfillment, is is beyond what John the Baptist did. It's something for the end time that must be done before Christ returns. And he's talking here at the very beginning of this that the message that is to come at the end is going to be a message of comfort. Now, it's a message, as they always have been, also of repentance and turning to God. But the message is, if you repent and turn to God, you will be comforted you will be blessed. Uh, we, we shall see that as we go through this. So, overall, the purpose is to comfort God's people when they are torn apart, scattered, splintered, destroyed, that there is an answer coming. So, the first thing that is uttered here is provide words of comfort to a people who are in Babylon scattered and that the warfare is almost over, it's accomplished, it's done, the scattering is almost finished, and an answer is coming. And the answer, of course, has to come from Christ. So this is someone who will be out in a wilderness and in the desert preparing a way for God's people so that Christ can do a work through them. And there again, verse 4 and verse 5 show that it is very, very much the end time when this message is to be given. And here we are in the end time, so it's time for this message to be given. Now let's go on and see what that message is beyond the, the comfort you, comfort you uh, of verses 1 and 2. 
Verse 6, the voice said, cry. A voice crying in the wilderness. A voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? In other words, you want me to cry something? You want me to give a message? What is it? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So, there is a message of comfort, and yet when he said, well, what do I say? What do I preach? Well, you preach that the end of this age is upon us, and most mankind is going to wither and die like grass does in the fall. Uh, only a hundred million people, apparently, from Daniel's uh, story, are even going to survive these end times until Christ returns. So, the first thing that has to be gotten across is that apart from God, you're dead. <laughs> the grass is going to wither and die. Uh, so, the Word of God is going to stand forever, but mankind cannot stand. So, that is the very basis of the message, is that we're temporary here. We're at the end time, and the mountains and the valleys are going to be turned all upside down and God is going to be revealed. So let people know that uh, our time on this earth, apart from God, is very, very limited. Um, that's, that's, isn't it, the message of all the prophets that we read? Well, this has to be brought out. Then he, he changes uh, and gets back to the positive side of it. O Zion, that bring good tidings, get you up into the high mountain. Or in the Hebrew it says, O you that tell good tidings to Zion. So it's speaking of a man who will come to bring good tidings to Zion. We know from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, as I've quoted many times, that Zion and Jerusalem are, are words that are typical of the church here in the end time the spiritual church or spiritual Israel, spiritual Jerusalem and Zion are the church. So this message is to go to the church. We saw there in Zechariah 4 that the two anointed ones, Zerubbabel and Joshua, would be preaching and giving oil to all seven churches. So the message here is to Zion, to the church, to Zion and Jerusalem says Zion first, and it says, O you that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up. Be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So there is to be a message of good tidings given to the church here at the end time, that Christ is returning. Uh, and we have seen much of this story going through the minor prophets, where Christ says he's going to rise from sitting and do his mighty work there in the end of Zechariah 2. Uh, how he is going to get very, very involved and how he's going to turn his face to his people again and bless them. Uh, and that's all through the prophecies. That once we turn to our heart, our heart to God, he is going to turn and bless us. 
and the, the lame will walk and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and we'll get deer's legs and so on and he'll lift us up with eagle wings. I'm, I could go to a thousand verses right here just to make this one point. The Christ is going to turn and begin to bless his people. We've been through those verses so I'm not going to go through them all right now. But let, let's understand what we need to be focusing on here. Because he says, this is an end-time message that must be delivered from the wilderness and the desert, that the end of all flesh is before us, but God is going to begin to bless Zion and Jerusalem, his spiritual church. They're the only ones he's going to bless here in the end time. Everybody else has to wait until the millennium or the great white throne judgment. He is only going to bless the elect, the called-out ones, the faithful remnant of Haggai, uh, as he lays out, or the latter temple. They're the only ones who are going to be blessed in the end time. The rest of the world is going to wither as grass. So he says the message is the whole world's going down, ending in the seven last plagues. But the only message of peace and good tidings is to the spiritual Israelite. So he puts this right back to back. First, tell them, the world is at an end, as we know it. And they even use that in some of the alternative media. The end of the world as we know it. They just use an acronym there. That's what this is saying. The end of the world as we know it. But tell the church that there are good tidings of good news. Comfort my people, he says in verse 1. The ones who are paying attention to God. They're the ones who are forgiven. Not the world as a whole. The world as a whole is about to die and come up in the second resurrection. Or if they live through, uh, into the millennium. But the only ones that can be comforted right now are those who are serving and obeying God. So he says, comfort them, bring good tidings, behold your God. Well, what is that doing? That's turning the hearts of the church to their Father in heaven. Behold your God. That's the message that is given there in Malachi 4 that's delineated back here. But this is the end time context. Christ is returning, but we already know from some scriptures we've read again that he is returning to his church first. What does it say there in Malachi 4 verse 1? But he will suddenly come to his temple. His temple is the church. So he's coming to his temple, to his church first. He says he'll dwell with them in the wilderness there in Zechariah 2 in Zion. So if we're talking about the Philadelphia church here, I've, I've entitled these sermons uh, the leadership of, but the who, what, why, where, when, and how is all interspersed within this. Because it says in Zion, and in Jerusalem, and in the desert, and in the wilderness... So he gives us where, right in the context of talking about the leaders and where the remnant will gather. So it's, it's all here, uh, but this, this lays it out in a, let's say, an organized fashion and summarizes what the message is. Then you have to go to all the other prophecies to enlarge that, to fill in the details, to give more specifics. But this is basically the message. Christ is coming first to his church, and then he is going to appear in glory uh, 
to lift his bride uh, from the earth and the first resurrection and take her to be married on the Day of Atonement. So behold your God is a very, very important part of the message in the wilderness. Verse 16, Behold, the eternal God will come with strong hand. Uh, what did you expect to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Did you expect to see softness, like in a king's palace? No. Uh, a strong arm, strong hand. And his arm shall rule for him. Uh, so he's going to make Zerubbabel a signet, he says, at the end of uh, Haggai 2 and that he will build a temple, and he's not going to come in weakness or namby-pamby or pansy or whatever. Uh, the message, the work, has to be with strength and power. Uh, what does he do with uh, the two witnesses in, Zechar- in uh, Revelation 11? says he'll give them power, uh, and they can stop the rain, they can cause plagues, uh, fire will come from their mouth to destroy people. Uh, that's not reed shaken in the wind. Uh, I, did, I don't see the original Elijah being a, a reed shaken in the wind. He taunted and scoffed at those 450 prophets, and actually 400 others as well, 850 total, uh, and made fun of them and mocked them, and uh, was, was actually quite nasty with them, if you will. And uh, God approved that, and then uh, licked up the fire and everything else, the stones and everything, and then the prophets of Baal were killed, and Elijah caused that to happen. Uh, So I guess guess he was a little timid when it came to that one woman. He'd had his fill. I I don't know. (laughs) He wasn't afraid of that widow lady that God had him live with for a year. Uh, He resurrected her child and showed great faith in the, the meal barrel and the oil not wasting and so on. But uh, there again, uh, there was power there, and there was faith in God there. But he overcame the situation with Jezebel as well, and she finally died, and the dogs ate her like uh, he had said they would. So don't expect uh, weakness or namby-pamby, uh, you've got to, this, this has to be a powerful thing. So, he will come with strong hand, and his arm will rule for him, speaking, I think, of Zerubbabel as a type there. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So, that is uh, quoted again in Revelation 11, what is it, about verse 18? I think, yeah, let's uh, let's thumb back there for a moment and see that, because it's quoted directly from here, which again shows that this is an end-time context, an end-time message, because uh, chapter 11 is the story of the two witnesses against the world, and right after they're resurrected, and, uh, and Christ has the first resurrection, uh, it says in verse 18, and the nations were angry, and your wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake great and small. 
So he is going to come and give his reward to the prophets and to the to the bride, the first fruits, uh, when he returns right after the two witnesses are killed. So that is quoted from Isaiah 40. Uh, it's, so Isaiah 40, again, is shown to be an end-time prophecy. He'll come and his reward is with him and his work before him. Well, when he first comes to the church, he's not going to come and every eye see him. He'll appear suddenly at his, with his temple, and he says he'll dwell with his people out in the desert and the wilderness at Zion and Jerusalem, and he will take care of them there. Now, whether he's visible to them or not, it does not say specifically. He just says he will be there and dwell with them. So instead of being at his father's right hand during that time, he's going to be dwelling on the earth. Visible or invisible, doesn't matter. He's going to be there with his people, blessing them, guiding and protecting and helping them. But at the end of that prophecy is when he returns in glory and the first resurrection occurs. So when he refers to it here in Isaiah 40, that's the context that he is speaking of. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather uh, the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. So it is a powerful prophecy of the end of the age. It is a comfort and good tidings to God's people who are going to be blessed during that time. And Christ will be there to lead and guide and give righteous leadership to his people through uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, as well as him being there to guide and direct their feet and their paths. So uh, this is entirely in time. Even though there were minor, I say minor, they weren't minor fulfillments with John the Baptist and Elijah, they were certainly major but they were not in the end-time context with the power that is shown here. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in balance? Who's done that? Well, this is speaking of Christ, who has power over the universe. Who has directed the spirit of the eternal? Or being his counselor, has taught him. We can come up with all kinds of theories about the origin of the universe. We can come up with all kinds of theories about religion. But God's religion is stated in the Bible. And he is over all and is everything. So who, who can counsel him? He tells us right here what shall be. Uh, this is what will happen. And you, you can't question it. You can't change it. This is it. What he's been talking about and will talk about after this. With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed to him the way of understanding? Well, obviously no one has. But he obviously is going to reveal to the end time Elijah... Uh, many things, because much has to be restored at the end. So it is going to be Christ's counsel. It is going to be his input that causes uh, doctrine to be straightened out, to even know where the promised land and uh, Zion and Jerusalem are. Now, there's, there's something that not a hundred people on earth understand this very day, uh, just the way it is. 
but it's going to be known around the world. <clears throat> Verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the coasts as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Uh, all the trees of Lebanon, uh, it's not even enough to make a campfire for God. The earth, the earth is his footstools, so how's he going to have a, a fire out of Lebanon? Not big enough to make a fire for him. Behold, he takes up, uh, let's see, wait a minute, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. If he took all the earth, all the beasts of Lebanon, uh, there's not enough there for an offering to God. He's so much greater than all the animals and people on the earth that there's, you know, you, you can't even compare. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? You think the message is going to be about behold your God? Uh, Ezekiel says it over and over, and they shall know that I am the eternal. And that's what he's expressing here, that the message that is to come is going to be, Behold your God, there is none like him. Uh, we're going to see some of the ways in the next few chapters here how that is going to be shown, that God is God and there is no other God. So he's stating it here right at the beginning <clears throat> that at the end time it must be known that there is no God but God. Who are you going to compare the true God to? Well, nobody knows him. How many people know the true God? Very, very few. Christ even told the Pharisees in his day, you don't know God. You're of your father the devil. That's the only God you know is the devil. And the Jews haven't gotten any better since. So if, any, if, they're, if they're better acquainted with God today than they were then, they know the devil better today than they did then. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. And these people out here who preach Christianity don't know the true God, and they aren't Christian. Herbert Armstrong knew that. He says, all this so-called Christianity. Uh, he realized that it was not Christian at all. It didn't follow the Bible. It wasn't following the Word of God. So he was able to proclaim that, uh, and he gave a great deal of truth, and he did restore a great deal. But he didn't restore everything. Uh, much, much more has to be learned and revealed uh, after Herbert Armstrong died. And now we're 30 years past, and he still did not restore everything that needed restored. He did not come with his message, in fact. Uh, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman melts a graven image, the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casts silver chains, he that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. So, rich and poor, the rich will make their images out of gold and silver, and the poor man will try to find a hardwood tree that won't rot and make his God out of it. So, they'll, it doesn't matter where you stand in society, you'll figure out a way to make yourself a God. Verse 21, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Don't you get it? There's a God who created the earth, and you can't make God. One of our leading idols is self. We try to make a God out of ourselves. We put our desires, our wishes, our wants, 
our appetites, whatever, ahead of God. And that is idolatry because we're putting ourselves and what we want ahead of what God says we are to do. So, can't we recognize the true God? Verse 22, it is He that sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. So, He sits above this orb, this planet, this earth, and He looks down on it, and everything is like grasshoppers that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. He created the atmosphere. He created the heavens. He gave us everything we have. That brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Now, he hasn't done that in an overwhelming worldwide way until what he is about to do when he rises to do his wonderful and marvelous work. Now, I'm sure over the years he has done this here and there, like with Nebuchadnezzar, who had a problem, and he put him out to eat grass for seven years. So God has dealt with the kings of the earth to some degree through the millenniums, but he's going to deal with them all here at the end time in a very powerful way, which is what this is speaking of. Yea, they shall not be planted, they shall not be sown, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Well, that was the beginning up there. He said, what shall I cry? Well, man is his grass. And here he says that the leaders of the world are his grass as well. They'll get blown away like grass in a whirlwind. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who has created these things, that brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. He even knows the sparrows that fall to the earth. He names people. He names the planets. He names the stars. Uh, we can't do that. I look up at the Milky Way, and I can't even see them all by any means, uh, much less name them. But God has names for all of them. Who are you going to compare? So is this a major part of the message to mankind at the end? You will be withered like grass, and your leaders will be withered like grass. Who is like God? Why say you, O Jacob, verse 27, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the eternal, and my judgment is passed over from my God. How can we stand up and say, I can do what I want to do, I can, and God won't see, God won't do anything about it, it's hidden from Him. We might try to hide from each other, but we can't hide from God. Uh, he sees it all. And my judgment is passed over from my God. So people can say, well, God won't be angry with me. He won't bother me. Uh, he doesn't see my evil. He only sees my good. Once saved, always saved. God only looks at my good. He looks at your evil, but just my good. <laughs> you know, uh, we get self-righteous real easy. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God, the eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth, Faints not, neither is weary. 
There is no searching of his understanding. Are we going to discount God in any form or fashion and say he's not seeing, he's not doing, he's not going to bring judgment on us? You, th- you think he's tired, he's old, he's just a ghost, that he's not going to do these things? No, he's very alive, he's very real. He gives power to the faint. Well, which faint? Those of his church, his elect, who have been about to faint and to die. He says he will intervene a little later in this context before the flesh fail before him. So the church has been the one about to faint, to give up, to quit, and many have. So he's going to give power to those. He's not going to give it to anybody else. He's going to give it to his church. All the scriptures say that. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Well, what's he going to do? He says, I'll give power to my witnesses. They won't have any strength on their own. He'll give power to his people. He says he's going to do it with old people. Then uh, Haggai and in Ezra, it shows old people that saw the temple in its first glory and compare the latter temple with it and that it's much greater. So he's going to have old men that he's going to give strength and power and and, and courage uh, to do the end-time work. He's not going to do it with the young people. It's this old generation that will not die out before Christ returns. That's the generation he's going to use. Well, I would hate for us to have to run to a place of safety in Zion today from right here. How far would we get, given our age and our physical debilities and so on and so forth. Uh, There might be one or two of us here that physically would have the stamina to get from here to Zion. But, uh, boy, it'd be a long haul for a lot of us, and some of us wouldn't make it, because it's about, oh, probably 20 miles from here uh, by walking, uh, the, the route that you would have to take. And a lot of it's uphill and through sand, and uh, it would be very, very difficult for us to get there. You want to try it, Gene? We could do a trial run, see if you get from here to Zion. Uh, it'd be tough, I guarantee you. I've walked it. It's not easy. So God is going to have to give us the wings of eagles and the, the feet of deer, <laughs> as he says in other scriptures. So he's going to give power to the faint, and to them that have might, he increases, or have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. So what is coming uh, is going to be so difficult upon the world as, as men wither as grass that even young people will not be able to handle it. Uh, God is going to have to give strength to the aged and to those that faint. But even if we were in youth and fitness, 22 years old and in great shape, He says, even they would not be able to handle what is about to come. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. So this world is going to go into trouble and trial and tribulation. Uh, The United States of America is going to go into it ahead of the rest of the world because the beast and the false prophet killed the woman, uh, the great whore, America, first. Uh, The attack is going to come here, and we will be destroyed as a nation. And then the new world order and the beast power will take over because America stands in the way to this day. 
So what good is it going to be our young people? Let's say they go into the military to fight. Well, God says our military is going to be destroyed. And that those who come from the north country in Isaiah, I mean Jeremiah 51 and 2, or 50, 51 and 2, uh, our, our military is going to be destroyed. Our leaders will sell us out and so on. So it won't do any good to be young and strong. Uh, you're going to be destroyed anyway. So he's going to have to give power to his old people. <laughs> That's what he says, verse 31. But they that wait upon the eternal, those who trust God, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So there's another good verse to show that God is going to take those who are fainting, who are about to give up, who are old, who are decrepit, who are weary, who are sick, and poor health, and so on, and he will give them wings as eagles. I don't think we'll have feathers and flap, but it's, it's imagery <laughs> that we'll be able to get up and go like an eagle would, uh, with strength and power, to do what needs to be done. Well, we made it through one chapter, and it's 15 after, so I guess I'll stop there rather than tackling chapter 41, but there's a lot of encouragement ahead of us here uh, in the end-time beginnings of preparation for what Christ is about to do here on this earth with His church. So let's stop then, right there for today.